Designer, author, educator, and artist, Bruce Mao is a brilliantly creative optimist whose love of thorny problems led him to create a methodology for life-centered design. Across 30 years of design innovation, he's collaborated with global brands and companies, leading organizations, heads of state, renowned artists, and fellow optimists. Mao became an international figure with the publication of his landmark book, Small, Medium, Large, Extra Large, designed and co-authored with Rem Koolhaas, and his most recent books, Art Mao MC24, Bruce Mao's 24 Principles for Designing Massive Change in Your Life and Work, and with co-author Julio Otino, The Nexus, Augmented Thinking for a Complex World, The New Convergence of Art, Technology, and Science. Mao is co-founder and CEO of the Massive Change Network, a holistic design collective based in the Chicago area. Bruce Mao, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So Bruce, just taking in the scope of your projects, you know, as a designer, multi-hyphenate educator, author, the Incomplete Manifesto for Growth, MC24, the Principles for Designing Massive Change, Institute Without Boundaries, The Nexus, your book about the new convergence of art, technology, and science, not to speak of also your collaborations with Rem Koolhaas, Frank Geary, your clients and redesigns of Guatemala, Mecca, projects for Amazon. Sorry, <laughs> I have to take a breath here. Walt Disney, MoMA, Netflix, and the Friedman Company, governments. So safe to say you've been dragging your feet all these years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's cumulative. You know, I've been at it a long time. Uh, so, if, you know, I, I often tell my girls, you know, if you, you can't win if you're not in the game. You know, so, so keep at it. You know, it's like uh, over time it builds up. I've been very fortunate. Well, you've made your future. You've really worked at it. And just to take it back home a bit, and I really like the documentary that was directed by Jonah and Benji Bergman. Just who is Bruce Mao? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a question. I figure I'll be working on that question, you know, until the clock stops. You know, I've spent my whole life trying not to have an answer to that question. <laughs> I've spent my whole life trying to remain free from a bounded answer, let's say, from a kind of limited answer. Um, and really to have the freedom to explore and change the answer to that question. And, you know, I'm sitting in a room filled with people that I really love, you know, people I've studied over the years. And, you know, I didn't really get an education per se. I, I kind of got booted out of that pretty early. And, and so I've kind of pieced it together myself and I've, I was always interested in people who, you know, seem to be kind of roaming the wilderness freely and exploring their own mind and their own capacity and their own creativity and not sticking to the categories that were imposed on them. And I like that a lot. You know, I like that kind of way of thinking. And I just naturally did it myself. You know, I just naturally thought about things freely. And so, you know, I've tried to kind of, you know, maintain that freedom. And there are a lot of forces in the world that are against it, you know, that they would like to put you in a box. And I, I, it's understandable, you know, people are trying to put you somewhere on their desk, you know, they want you to, they want to put you somewhere that they can find you again. And it's not mean spirited. It's just, you know, kind of efficiency often, sometimes it is mean spirited, but 
usually it's just that they're trying to, you know, tidy up. But if you're not careful, you can actually let it limit you. Let it kind of be the story that you tell yourself. And I've tried, you know, certainly life trying to avoid that. Yeah, we are the stories we tell ourselves. And you are actually a master storyteller and listener to, you know, understand, draw people, other people's creativity as well. But this sense of freedom, because you did grow up on a farm mining, just tell us a little bit more about that, the kind of, not entirely a blank page, but a little bit more wild than those of us who grew up in cities would have. Well, you know, I realized that, you know, for the longest time, I didn't think it had anything to do with what I do now. You know, I grew up on a farm outside of a mining town in Northern Canada. Our house was built on a kind of rocky hill and, you know, it's a far north. It was minus 40 for weeks on end during the winter. And we couldn't, we didn't have running water during the winter months. Uh, so my job as a young man was to go to the well in the valley and bring water up to the house with my snowmobile. You know, I didn't see how that was part of design. <laughs> you know, like, I just didn't think that was part of it. And that whole kind of life experience, which was really unregulated, and I think it, it wasn't until quite recently that I began, you know, when I began to work in Guatemala and places like that, where I realized, oh, I actually share that experience with you. Like, I know what it means to not have running water and, and to have to provide that for the family and you know, what the physical labor is involved in that. And that it actually is a kind of like, there's an empathy in that experience of understanding someone else's experience that is central to what I do. But that unregulated space proved to be very important that, you know, I drove every conceivable vehicle, but I've never had a license. We built all kinds of things. I don't think anyone ever got a permit for anything, which is why a lot of stuff burnt down, including my own house. You know, things like people just did what they wanted. And if you wanted to do something, you had to make it happen. And that turns out to be my job description. <laughs> like essentially what I do is make things happen. And, and that's, you know, that actually, like there is no boundary to that. You know, there is no category to that. You just make things happen and, and you don't ask permission. You know, you, you have to figure out how to do it and you have to inspire people. If you want to get a hockey game going, you have to inspire people to clean off the pond and it's work, <laughs> but you're going to play hockey. So let's get it done. And that really is actually what I do for a living. Yeah. And it's something that we'll all have to be doing now is thinking about also how we work within the ecosystems that we live in, maybe not in a lawless way. Now we have to respect that. <laughs> so understanding that we're vulnerable in these terrains. And so I think that it's really useful because so many of us ask permission. So we'll, I want to go into some of those principles of MC24, which is, of course, an, a long evolution from your earliest manifestos to really democratizing design. And if you talk about some of those principles and then how you might have applied them to individual briefs of your, your notable projects, like we mentioned at the beginning. Well, the, you know, the principles really, I mean, it's a f kind of funny story how we ended up doing them, you know, producing them because I was made an honorary Royal designer for industry by the RSA in London. 
It's a very prestigious thing. It's only 200 designers in the world. And they sent a group of young leaders to Chicago to meet with us in that. You know, we showed them our work, BC and I, and they said, wow, you're a really weird dude. What kind of designer are you? I said, I'm a designer. And they said, well, you're designing cities and carpets and social movements and institutions. And, you know, we think of designers being defined by their products. You know, an architect does buildings, a product designer does products, a graphic designer does two-dimensional things, but you're designing even things that you can't see. And, you know, what kind of designer are you? How do you do it? And I said, I just showed you, you should have paid attention. And they said, well, no, you showed us the results, but you actually didn't mention how you think. You didn't say anything about that. And I realized that we didn't really know that we had just evolved over a long period of time. You know, we'd been doing it for, at that point, about, you know, going on 30 years. And, and it had just happened organically that, you know, we got kind of weirder and weirder problems. And we just figured out how to do it. And I realized, I don't know, is probably not a good answer. And so we sat down and tried to figure out, there, we thought, there must be principles. There must be underlying principles that we apply in our work, that we can't be just making it up. And so we sat down and came up with 24 principles of MC24. And it really was, you know, it took several years to kind of sort of go back and look at all the work and say, we you know what, what kind of informed this. And it really was looking through that and kind of teasing them out. And if you think about them, you know, if you can really look at any of them. One of them is we're not separate from or above nature. And for me, that's one of the most Copernican. It really is a completely different understanding of our place in the universe than the conventional Western model, which is that we own nature. You know, 2000 years ago, we were given the natural world that we are above it. It belongs to us and we have dominion over it. That it turns out, you know, <laughs> everything about that is wrong and none of that is true. You know, we're part of it. We are nothing special. We're just another species. And when we were working in Panama with E.O. Wilson on the Panama Museum of Biodiversity for the world's first museum of biodiversity, we went into the jungle with Il Wilson and he explained that, uh, there's only one thing on the planet and that's life. And life has an experiment going in form and we're one of those forms. And you know, 99, over 99% of all the experiments have gone extinct. So less than 1% of all the forms that ever existed now exist and you know, we're living through another one of the mass extinctions. Many of those are going to go extinct. We may be one of those and life goes on. Life will go on. And he said, rock is slow life and life is fast rock. That you are rock animated with electricity. And when we turn that electricity off, you go back to rock. You know, you return to the earth. And that's all it is. There's an endless cycle. And the sooner that we get that concept into our way of thinking, into our cosmology, into our way of understanding the universe, into our way of working, the sooner that we'll start to actually do things that have a plausible future. The way we are working now, you know, we're just drawing down 
our future, you know, we're drawing down the resources of the earth. I was thinking of that as I was walking through the Luxembourg gardens this morning about these beautiful trees and their slow nature. And I actually, I was thinking about you because I think this word applies to your creativity, arborescence, how they have all this collective wisdom, but also stay very much within the confines of what they are, not overreaching, right? Yeah. Um, and it makes me think about, when I think about design, you know, there's two sides of it. You've argued to separate design from its visual form entirely, that there's structural design and it's not this superfluous stamping one's identity on the design. There's other levels of design. But it seems to me like a great challenge of designers now is in order to implement the, as you say, our existential crisis, and in order to implement the norms and regulations and consistent reusable fabrication elements that one might need to have a true circular economy and all those things, we might have to, like nature, sacrifice some of our individuality to work more collectively. How do you come to terms with that? Maybe taking away some of the individuality of design in order to have something that we can all use and reuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it's a, it's a really good question. You know, I think Freud talked about the narcissism of small differences, and I think that is a kind of favorite place for design. <laughs> you know, I mean, designers, designers, you know, set up shop there and make a living on that idea. Who cares? Who cares about that? Let's concentrate on the big problems, the big issues. There's an unlimited number of problems. You know, you can dedicate your life to the big problems and have absolutely no possibility of exhausting him. <laughs> and, um, you know, you could never run out. So, you know, let's not worry about whether you're making, you know, whether you need to make the bottles a slightly different shape. Let's focus on the big things. And really, we are going to need to have some agreements on the little things, which turn out to be the big things. Right? Because when you get billions of us, doing these little things, they turn into the big things. So, you know, let's just get to some agreements on those things so we can focus on the big things and really make a difference because those little things really don't matter. You know, I don't really care if those little things, if I still get to do those, it's inconsequential if I get to live and all the other species get to live too. If I get to have you know, my little expressive moment, but I kill life on the planet, you know, like what universe does that make sense in? Right. Yeah. And you've really made it the core of your design philosophy, this life-centered design. Yeah. And it's really important just if we could just learn how to live in harmony with nature, like the murmuration of birds, how do they do that? I still don't yeah. know. <laughs> They're certainly not trying to only do their own thing all at the same level. Let's talk about some of those projects like with Frank Geary or the Biodiversity Museum or Walt Disney Projects. It's quite a few. Just how you applied this design thinking and took the joy of creation and used it to create this collective vision. Well, for me, I have been probably the most fortunate designer of the last half century. World leaders that you could possibly hope to work with. You know, I've collaborated with some of the greatest minds and artists and entrepreneurs and I've been very, very fortunate. And so I've had the pleasure and good fortune to work with really extraordinary people. And I've worked very hard to do that. I forget who said it, but I remember once hearing, 
you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. So I've worked hard to make that happen. And for me, I have a really open approach. I don't start knowing what to do. I start trying to understand what the opportunity is. And it was actually my friend, Mark Mathieu, who was the head of global brand at Coca-Cola, who after we did, I built the global sustainability platform for Coca-Cola. And after we finished the work, Mark said, you know, Bruce, the best thing you did, you didn't charge me for it. You didn't tell me you were going to do it. I don't know if you even know that you did it. And I said, tell me what I, please, please tell me. And he called it branding the opportunity. And I said, you know, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you were able to articulate the opportunity in a way that inspired everyone on the team to move in the same direction. And he said, when, you know, before you arrived, we had 150 people pointing 150 directions. And the way that you were able to see the problem and articulate the opportunity and what would happen if we accomplished it, the impact that we could have in the world, it inspired everyone to work towards it. And he said, suddenly we had 150 people all pointing the same direction. And he said, that was the most valuable thing. He said, I saw it happen. It happened, you know, in a few minutes, the moment that you articulated the opportunity, it changed everything. And, you know, since then we've been conscious of saying, you know what, actually that's a really important thing. Of course that is, you know, that's an important thing to do in your work is to actually articulate the opportunity and not only the problem, right? To say, look, here's what happens if we do this, you know, like if we do this and we succeed, how's the world different? You know, what could happen if we accomplish this and what could we accomplish? And I like to say that when you lock in, you also lock out. So the moment that you lock in on what you're going to do, you're also locking out everything else. Right? So when you define what you're going to work on, you're defining the scope of the opportunity. You're defining the biggest thing that you can accomplish. So you're locking out anything else that's bigger. And so that early part of the project, that first part where you don't know what you're going to do, you don't know what the problem is. You don't know what the solution is. Certainly that is so valuable as a kind of time in the work where you can really explore possibility. And I love that. I love that work. I love to be there. I love it before we have a contract, you know, before we know we're going to get paid, you know, I, I love that moment where we don't know. And it's a moment where you can actually really think freely about what could happen and think about the problem and think about, you know, what we could change and how we could do things differently. And for me, that is such an important moment in the work. And Mark was absolutely right. It's how we work. You know, it really is how we work. And once you get it, once you see it, you know, it's easy from there. You know, I mean, it's not easy, but it's a lot of work, but once you get that, it's really exciting. It's like getting everyone in a team to work as dancers and to have that kind of telepathy. It's very interesting. And I thought, and if you don't mind the comparison, I thought that from reading your work and hearing from others who've collaborated with you, that this is intense listening process. And almost, if I may say, it seems like 
I don't want to say therapy, but that's, I say, is a good therapy is to listen <laughs> that they find their own problems. And then you just like, yeah. that's, yeah. and then go, I don't know. Yeah. Almost every client expresses their problem as a solution. Right? They say, we need a logo. So the way that they come to the, you know, the, the way that they come to the meeting is they come to the meeting thinking that they have to find the problem. Of course, that's why they're hiring you. But almost always, not always, you know, sometimes they're absolutely right, but almost always the problem is not the solution that they're defining. It's more complex. It doesn't fit. And in fact, a lot of the work that we do, I mean, a lot of the reason we get called is that someone else has failed. So, you know, they've tried and failed and they can't figure out why it failed. And they're trying to understand what the real problem is, but they often express it as a solution. And our work is to help them. It really is a therapeutic process to kind of work back and say, okay, why do you want to do this? And, you know, what are you really trying, what are you really hoping for? You know, what's the outcome that you're hoping to accomplish? You know, like if you think about the future, what future are you thinking about? And, you know, what do you think that's going to look like? And how is it going to be different than what you have now? And it's, it's that kind of thinking process to help them through that. And that kind of questioning is, it's interesting because, you know, I recently published a book called The Nexus with my partner, Julio Otino, who's the Dean of Engineering at Northwestern. And when I arrived here in Chicago, Julio asked me to join the faculty at Northwestern at McCormick. And I said, Julio, I don't know anything about engineering. Like, shouldn't I get an engineering degree? And he said, no, we need to be like you. You don't need to be like us. And I couldn't, I didn't understand what he was saying. And over time, he ex eventually explained it. He said, if I ask a kind of classical engineer to make a bridge, the question they will ask is, how thin can I make the bridge? That's the, uh, it's about efficiency. The question you will ask is, why do you want a bridge? Maybe a boat would be nicer. <laughs> I thought, I thought, you're absolutely right. That is the way I would, like, that's the way I would think about it. I would be like, why do you want a bridge? I mean, maybe these people don't want to be together, you know, like, like maybe going around the long way is actually working for them. You know, maybe a bridge would ruin stuff. And I think that way of thinking, that process of interrogation, of thinking about things and exploring why you want to do things and what the implications are. If you do that, what are you going to get? You know, what's the result? Yeah, it goes back to that being lost, training yourself to be lost. And it seems like one of the great challenges, not just for a designer, but just for everyone. Because we all want to say, oh, we know what we're doing. <laughs> That's when we make our real mistakes. You know, that is a big, big idea. I'm very, very concerned that we are already in a time of being lost, that a lot of people feel lost. And they feel like the world has kind of moved out from under them and that they have lost their bearings. They've lost their anchor and they don't have what it takes to actually navigate. And in that kind of environment, it's a very rich environment for fascism and for the worst kind of political movement, you know, the worst kind of political actors to take advantage of that feeling of powerlessness and fear and disconnection. And design is a methodology that is an empowering methodology within a condition of being unmoored. 
So when you don't know what to do, design is a methodology of figuring out what to do. So it's a very important empowerment tool. And it's why we're doing a project that we call Massive Action, which is to really give people the tools of empowerment, to give them the power to design their life. Because over the coming couple of decades, people are going to see a level of turmoil and change that has not happened in human history. We have to change practically everything. I mean, practically everything that we do, you know, the foundation of our society is our energy system. The foundation of any culture is energy. And we have to change fundamentally our source of energy, which is going to change everything else. So every tool that we use, every vehicle, every system, every, everything we plug in or charge up or <laughs> anything, everything that we do has to change. And people are going to go through a level of turmoil and conflict and disconnection that hasn't happened before. And I really worry that it's going to be a time and we're already seeing it. It's going to be a time where the forces of autocracy and totalitarianism and fascism will find fertile ground. If we don't actually help people navigate those conditions. And we have to realize that people like us, I would, I would say, I think I can safely say that people like us, when we hear the words massive change, we're excited. We think, Hey, yeah, let's go. You know, uh, most people hold onto their wallet and back out of the room. You know, they're not excited by massive change. Uh, they want mess to stay the same. You know, they want to know what's going to happen. They want to know that they're okay. They want to know that they're going to be in their job next year. And we're entering into a time where we really honestly can't predict that. In fact, we can predict quite the opposite. And so I think we need a new kind of leadership and design is a big part of that, helping people with these new conditions and giving people tools to say, you can design your life. It's an outcome. And as soon as you want a specific outcome, you're a designer. So let's get some design tools so that you can be a good designer uh, and not a weak designer. And so for me, that idea of actually, you know, having the ability to actually control outcomes really gets to the kind of fundamental questions of empowerment. Yeah. So many of us forget that our government, our democracy, these are all designs. But what gets a lot of people, and particularly, I think, visual thinkers as well, is so much is left in the abstract for us. And so we hear these, you know, government wishes and these desires and, and, and the slogans that they keep <laughs> borrowing from each other, but we don't see enough. So we have to have that real implementation of design thinking and action. And so under your massive change network, you mentioned some of the issues we're going through. As you know, we're living in the century of the city and we hear so much about innovation and smart cities. But if you could focus on some of those issues and the concerns that we face, like food insecurity, water shortages, heat waves, as you say, energy, climate, transport, you know, what would you like to focus on where you see progress if you had to, we have to prioritize some things? Well, cities is certainly a great place to start because the way that we do them I mean, you can see just if you go up in an airplane and look down, you can see that they're built against nature. 
I mean, you could just look at it and see it in the color of the city, you know, that they're built. And it's interesting. It's, we reflected it in our maps. Cities are gray and the rest of the world is green, right? And, you know, we build them against the natural world. And the way that we do it, concrete is one of the worst environmental materials we could use. And we have no intention at the moment of changing that. And we're going to add roughly two more billion people, almost all of whom will live in cities. I mean, the scale of that problem is absolutely staggering. And we intend to put them in buildings. No one I've found is willing to say, no, actually, you got to stay outside. No, we're going to put them in buildings and we're going to build about half the world again uh, to accommodate it. And so all of that has to change. And the good news is that there's huge effort being made, huge innovation projects all over the world. We've been working with ASU for a long time, Arizona State University. They've done a lot of research on building materials, but they're not alone. There's people all over the world doing it. So there is a lot of work being done to change that, but we really need to reconceive. And that's what life-centered design is really about. It really to kind of put life into the center of the way that we think. If you walked into practically any design university in the world today, any design school, we teach human-centered design. And as Julio Tino said, you're not going to solve climate change with human-centered design. You can make humans as happy as can be, but you know, like the happiest humans in the world are not going to make climate change better. You have to think outside of humans, but we still, the dominant, really the only teaching happening in design is human-centered design. It's the only model. And so we put the human back into the center of Copernicus's model. Copernicus said, no, 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 it's not all about us. And we spent the last several hundred years proving them wrong. It's like, no, we insist on, you know, it's that it's all about us. And it's not, it's actually about life. And we're going to have to get that into the model. So imagine a city about life, how different that would be, right? Imagine a living city, how different that would be. And, you know, I met just a few days ago with a group here in Chicago who are doing a school that is a living school and it's a revolution. It's the Academy for Global Citizenship here in Chicago. And they're in a food desert in like the poorest neighborhood in Chicago. They're making a school that is producing all its own food. That is, it's energy positive. It's not consuming energy. It's producing energy. It's producing food. The kids will have healthy food from their own production and they will experience life. They'll experience the change of the seasons. It's a whole different model and it's revolutionary. Like I realized they're showing me their project and I feel like I'm seeing a new thing for the first time. You know, it's like, this hasn't happened before and it's really revolutionary. And this is what we have to do. So we have to come to, and I mean, the staggering challenge is that we have to do it in practically every category. Right. And that's what I mean by we're going to live a kind of turmoil. That's just one category, one school, one neighborhood in Chicago. We need to do that in every school in the world. Yeah. How on earth are we going to do that? It's an absolutely massive transformation.
Thinking about the country, uh, Bhutan, which of course is one of the, I believe it's the only carbon negative country that, as you say, producing energy, but it's because I feel as, as well, they have wonderful principles, but it's also because of having a small population, that luxury and, you know, health, modern medicine has made it so that we have the issue of this population. So it's difficult. I would love to, to see that in practice, the living school, or there's some indigenous universities that we've spoken to, but I don't know it in practice. I feel that in some ways you must find it with the companies, the enterprises. And I would like to go a little bit into this enterprise design and what that means, experience design, that you sort of have to incentivize around the human. I feel like that the principle of teaching for life and designing for life is wonderful, but a lot of people are still, you have to incentivize them about their quality of life. It's a kind of sad thing. Well, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't accept it. I have to go full, you know, you have to go all the way and I have to figure out, it's like any other design problem. You know, like I had an absolutely wonderful shrink and, you know, when I met her, I said, you know, I got to lose some weight. And she said, oh, I thought you were the massive change guy. <laughs> and then I said, oh, I guess I see what kind of relationship we're going to have. And she was honestly right. You know, you have to go all the way. Like you have to do the real thing. And, you know, you, you can't solve half the problem. You really need to think about it holistically. And so incentivize. Now, you know, you're right that. Within that, you're going to have to figure out some incentives, but you need to understand, and we need to figure out how to connect people to life. Because I think one of the problems is that we've disconnected them. We've disconnected ourselves from the living world. And we have this beautiful quotation from David Orr. He's an environmentalist and teacher. And he said, you know, can we imagine education? that doesn't dominate nature. And I think it's, you know, the jury's out. Like we have to actually reconceive it. We have to think about the living world that we're part of. And, you know, what I found so interesting working in Sudbury at this architecture school that I'm part of is at the McEwen School, is that the McEwen School is a collaboration between French, English, and indigenous leaders. And so I've been on the board now for several years and I was going up there and working with these folks. And I discovered that the indigenous folks have a different cosmology. They don't put humans at the center. They put life at the center. And one of the guys said, we think that we're related to the rocks and the grasses, which is actually what E.O. Wilson said, right? E.O. Wilson said, rock is slow life and life is fast rock. So here you have the greatest life scientist in the last half century saying the same thing as the indigenous cosmologist. Right? So the, the spiritual cosmology and the science are coming to the same place, which for me really, I mean, when I realized that, I thought, wow, this is just an incredible, incredible situation that you have, you know, the science and the spirituality coming to the same place. They're right. And we are related to the rocks and the grasses, but we've been so thoroughly disconnected from it. So the students in this class, in the school, one of the projects that they did is they would go into the forest with an indigenous elder and they would make a birch bark canoe in the way that it's been done for thousands of years. 
I mean, they would make one of the most beautiful things humans have ever invented, like beautiful in every way, utility, form, like beautiful. They would launch it. They'd have the experience. I mean, an incredible thing that you could make this thing out of a tree, you know, the tree bark and just stunning. But the most, in some ways, the most beautiful thing about it is that when the canoe is worn out or broken, it's, it's no longer useful. You simply take it back to the forest and it becomes food for the next generation of life. And it is that kind of perfect cyclical experience. And I thought, wow, like imagine having a generation of architects who think this way, right? Who have this model as a conceptual model, who have that connection, who are living that experience, who are connected to life in that way. And I think that, you know, that's the challenge we have to have. So instead of trying to figure out what kind of TikTok could we could do to help incentivize them you know, to, to make them behave properly. Maybe we have to reconnect them to life itself. I was also wondering, because the big issue now is, uh, of course, is, is waste. Like we would be able to buy more time if we didn't have quite so much waste. And I wondered how you introduce, we knew we were working with some, like the Freeman Company, which has so many exhibitions and events. How do you introduce that? ecological design or this concept of reuse or any of the other companies too? Yeah, it's a great question. For me, one of the, you know, I like to look systematically to find a kind of acupuncture point where if you say, look, if we made a change right here, everything else is improved. And it often has to do with material. So for instance, in Freeman, simply by introducing sustainable materials, Everything else you do fits into the cycle, right? Like if you're using materials that can easily be cycled, then what you do with them is kind of like a beautiful kind of dance. But at the end, we're going to take them back and make them into the cycle again, right? And so they had a little, you know, they developed a little kit for all the designers. It was basically all the materials you use. Any of these materials, we can go on, you know, it goes on forever. And that way of thinking for me is, really the way that it's really the way that we can go into what Bill McDonough and Baumgart called cradle to cradle, where you can keep cycling that through. And they talked about an industrial cycle and a natural cycle, that there's these kind of two loops and you can kind of have both of those loops working. You know, obviously the more that we can use the natural cycle, the more that you know that it's not problematic, right? The more that if you're using molecules that, you know, every molecule in the canoe breaks down into molecules that become food for the next generation of life. You don't have to process it. You don't need to do anything. Whereas if you make your canoe out of fiberglass, I'm sure there is a way to recover that material, but I just don't know. I don't know offhand how you would do it, but you're going to have to process it a lot. And it's going to take a lot of energy and work and time to figure out how to do that. And I imagine it has a ripple effect because for those who don't know, the reach of Freeman is so wide with all these events. So all of these companies are being exposed to this element of reuse and sustainability in, in the signage and presentation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, Freeman does, you know, they're the biggest producer of trade shows and exhibits in the world. So, and which is, you know, I like doing those kinds of things because when you make a change, it has a big impact across the system. Bruce, I'm very much a book person and. When I first saw your beautiful bookshelf, I knew that I wanted to talk about your books. So thinking about three of them, there's the massive change one that came out in 
the turn of the century around 22 years ago. And then there's lifestyle and then there's Mal MC 24. And I want me as audience to kind of get a sense of the beauty and force of your writing by reading this excerpt from the most difficult book, lifestyle. I think the most challenging for me. So it starts, there are few terms that have been as savagely commodified and gutted of meaning in recent years. Our first instinct is to leave its empty carcass for the vendors and merchants, but I will recuperate it. And I love that beginning because it's so bold. You can take all those books behind your head now and sort of say, you better think about your lifestyle. So I showed your three books to my daughter, who's a doctor. And I want to tell you that she loved massive change the most in the sense that she said, I felt like the man introduced me to 40 visionaries in one book. Uh-huh. And then, you know, the Mount MC 24 is your 24 fundamental principles. Do you think it's fair for me to recommend to the new generation, trying to understand the force of your work, should they start with massive change? Is that the book they still should go to? Or what book would you have them go to, to get the force of what you're saying to the next generation? I think massive change is a good place to start. You know, it lays out, you know, it's a shorter book. It lays out a kind of big picture of what design can do. And it really did introduce a kind of global ambition for design. And it, it in some ways kind of articulated the movement that hadn't been done before. The feeling that I had was like, we put a pot of water on the stove and then I took the lid off and there was a river in it. <laughs> it was like, uh, all right, but boy, it really was like boiled with my daughter. You know, I just want you to know that in the sense that she represents to me, informed, smart, new generation. And your book is doing that massive change book is still doing very well 22 years after. So in that way, it's like your small is beautiful to me as you are, or, you know, that book of Buckminster Fuller's that really broke through. Right. So having said that, on the one hand, it's easy for me to tell these new students about your breakthrough projects, like the way you redesign and make up to lessen crowd collapsing. But it's a little harder to say the two or three fundamental things they should read your books for. So I'm going to try and sum up this 40 years of learning. What I see is you begin with evidence, actual fact and science. And then with optimism in your designs, you establish wicked teams that rise above the noise. Is that a fair way of summing up the four dimensions that you work in? So you begin in science, it's not ideology. And then with optimism in the design, you establish teams. Now that's part of the magic, the people you choose to work with. And I could see why the RSA in London would make you one of the top 200 designers. I mean, it's a nice shirt for him. And it hits on, I think, a few of the most important themes. You know, one of the principles is begin with fact-based optimism. And for me, that combination is really critical. It's not head in the sand. It's not pie in the sky optimism. It's not like idiotic optimism. It's using the data, right? Because the data is on our side. The problems we have now are success problems, not failure problems. We don't have problems because we failed. We have problems because we succeeded. And there are now 8 billion of us, right? So if we had failed more frequently, we'd have fewer problems. That data evidence-based approach is absolutely critical, but also our responsibility is optimism, right? Like other people can be cynical. Like you want to be cynical, go right ahead. Don't come around here because that's not the domain of design. Optimism is a precedent for massive change. 
because yeah. I could do leverage. When Archimedes says, give me a lever long enough and I'll move the world. Well, I think your work is showing me optimism is part of the boost to get going. Yeah. And I do yeah. that in everything you've ever done and anything I've ever watched you on all of the film that's now out there. Yeah. Can we spend a little time on the magic of the wicked teams? How do you establish teams? Is that something BC Williams helps you assess or how do you find these teams that you work on? Well, the concept of the Renaissance team was first introduced by Bill Buxton. He invented Maya, the software Maya. He's an incredible guy. He's a musician, software developer. And we were studying him as part of Massive Change. We went to visit him and he loved what we were doing with Massive Change. And he called me and said, I'm coming to be your chief scientist. And I said, I really don't have a call for a chief scientist here. And he said, well, I'm coming over there. So he came. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> so he came and he worked in the studio for about a year, just, you know, just decided. And he worked, he came into the studio and he worked on mass change with us. He's incredible. And he's now the head of research for Microsoft in London. And so he came in and he said, Bruce, you know, you actually have a method of collaboration and what you're putting together, he called them Renaissance teams. He said, you can't have a Renaissance person anymore that. The bodies of knowledge are too big. You can't, you can hardly keep pace with one, let alone more than one. I mean, you know, in the Renaissance, you could actually master multiple domains. Like you could be, you could master the domain of civil engineering and military planning and painting. And, you know, if you were, Vinci, if, you actually, if you're that talented, but, but even Da Vinci would be overwhelmed today. And he said, but you can have a Renaissance team. You can put together a group of people who bring different expertise. And you figured out how to work together and actually how that method works. And so that's where the kind of insight came from. And so we realized that actually these kind of wicked teams were necessary for the scale of the challenge. You know, when the problem doesn't fit in the domain, domain expertise isn't very useful. Like if it's not an engineering problem and I'm an engineer, what do I do? I need to actually have a team. And that's where the wicked team really comes into play. And then the question is, so what are the rules of being on a wicked team? And so in the book, we actually lay out, there's kind of seven rules to say, you know, how to be a wicked team player. Like you need to know how to do it. Having just been in the dance of dialogue with Bruce Mao, I'm happy to say that I think of Bruce as a visionary thinker. Some think of him as an architect turned genius. But I think in reading his books, Massive Change or Lifestyles or his book on his 24 principles, which are all visually splendid, I've come to conclude that there's a method to his genius. He always begins with evidence. And then from that evidence, with optimism in his design, he begins to establish a wicked team, a team of diverse disciplines that he then finds coachable people to define a team. In some of his books, he talks of 17 principles of the Wicked Team. In others, he talks of 24 principles. But long and short of it, by beginning with evidence, by adding his unique charm of optimism, and then establishing these coherent teams, his design rises above the noise. And the way to think of this is the Mecca case that I studied before working with him on another complex corporate assignment. The Saudi government gave Bruce reams of data and evidence about the flow of the people and the crowd collapses that led to fatalities during the pilgrimage. And 
They then gave him what properties he could lay out on the map that they own, as opposed to the private properties in the flow of these hundreds of thousands of people. And he looked at it optimistically. They wanted him to solve it in 10 years. He said, let me try and solve it in 10 years, but for the next 100 years. That's where the optimism came in. And then he established teams of experts, came up with a wicked solution that enabled them to rise above the noise that were implementable and could be embodied by the Saudi properties and was in fact selected and used. I think I take from that example a method to his genius that I've seen replicated not only in his books but in his practice. And I think that's what enables him to be more than an organizational therapist in that he also blends the old with the new. In the Mecca case, you're taking something that's thousands of years old and using new technologies and new insight to synthesize a solution. There is always also, in conclusion, a sense of humor in his work. For example, his manifesto for growth is called an incomplete manifesto for growth. His book on lifestyle starts, there are few terms that have been as savagely commoditized and gutted of meaning in recent times as the word lifestyle. But let me resuscitate that word. So he's very humorous and very original. And now back to the interview. And a lot of people can't. Like we've had situations where people really had breakdowns, you know, like they couldn't. They want more certainty, right? And you, you put together teams that reinforce past uncertainty. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It's like one of the rules of the Wicked team is that leadership isn't defined by age or seniority, right? So the leader might be the youngest guy on the team. One of the biggest projects I ever did was a project I did in Tokyo, and that was led by the youngest guy in the studio. He went to Tokyo, met with Mr. Mori. Mr. Mori was the biggest developer in Japan. He used to have, you know, he's passed away now, but he, he used to have lunch regularly with the prime minister of Japan. <laughs> like he's a heavy dude. And Donald went to Japan and met with him and he was great. We did a beautiful project with Donald leading that team. And it was clear to everyone that Donald had what it took at that moment. It's a description of a brilliant deputy and that it's not about experience or age. And then I also thought we covered a lot of great distance talking about the Panama Museum of Biodiversity or your work with the Nexus, with the Dean of Engineering, or your advice to your daughters that you cannot win if you are not with the game. Knowing the lack of attention span that the current day provides you, say we're dealing with someone of high potential between 25 and 30. I do want to tell you that my foundation is giving an award to make it concrete, Bruce, to an indigenous scientist, Dr. Jessica Hernandez is from Seattle, who just wrote a book, Fresh Banana Leaves, where she starts the book talking about her father suffering under the regime in El Salvador, the pressure of trying to be authentic to himself and how that trauma she had to delay her from that trauma. And now she's trying to delay her from colonization across the world. So we are giving her this award in September in front of 500 writers. But the beautiful thing for us is she's less than 40. She, you know, she can come up with this important book. So focusing on people between the ages of 30 or 40, when they can have a long runway to really change the world, what are the two or three things you want to give to them who are on the right path? of massive change. That's a great question. What a wonderful thing to do. 
It was yeah. fun. It's fun to find these people. Process. Sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the, like when we did massive change, the, one of the best things about it was, you know, we studied several hundred of the great innovators solving the world's most difficult challenges. I mean, it was like, if you want a mainline injection of optimism, like that's the project to do. <laughs> it was fantastic. What do I want to tell them? You know, I would say for me, one of the, probably the best thing I've done in my life is marrying BC Williams. So that's, I, I think doing that well is probably the best thing you can do for your work. I believe the same happened to find a, a person when I was a grad school that I'd been with for 45 years. And it's a blessing because they don't care. They have faith in you that something's going to come through with your career. They're not going to say, choose this or choose that, or don't do this. But when you get that moral support, you can see in BC Williams. So I hear you say, be bold, but also find a good soulmate. BC has been so important in, and I've seen it in other people, you know, Frank Gehry is married to Berta. Berta is the voice. I, you know, I've seen her so often say, Frank, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, like, don't do that. And also, you know, we were very close friends with Kosha and Klaus, Kosha Van Bergen and Klaus Oldenburg, who just passed away. And Kosha was so important to Klaus, you know, like he, Kosha was there and, you know, she was also a very important artist herself. And so I think that foundation is really like, in my case, you know, BC has been a partner in everything, uh, all this time. And that's why we were able to have such an incredible life and do the work that we we're able to do. That's beautiful. You seem to be an avid reader. It seems like you started humbly in this interview saying I was not formally educated, but I am curious. It seems like voracious reading is part of the formula. Yeah, I love books. And, uh, you know, the book is still a very powerful technology and, you know, the book doesn't crash, you know, like I have a bunch of stuff sitting on my desk that I can't open anymore. I have no idea how I'm ever going to get access to it again. <laughs> it sounds like a real problem. You know, my books, I'll always be able to open. I still open the zone books that I did 40 years ago. I don't need to update them. They're still on the point one version of the software and they still are beautiful. And, and for me, the work that it takes to make a book and the process I call typography and really the real kind of functionality of the book is the controlled release of information in time. Right? When I'm designing a book, that's what I'm really designing. I'm designing the controlled release of information in time. And that turns out to be one of the most important things that we can do in our society is to actually help people with the controlled release of information in time. In each of your books, you will see that controlled release of important information with a lot of visual splendor. So in addition to that kind of deliberately outrageous prose phrasing about how lifestyle is savagely commodified, you'll get some very fancy phrasing, but every page there's a wow to it because of the visual splendor. It's not like you got to wait until page 240 to feel the work of Bruce Mount. By the second and third page, you're already seeing things that he wants you to think about. And I think that that's part of the appeal of the books is there for both people who think in prose, but also people who think visually. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I fell in love with. When I discovered what happens when you put images and words together, 
I just fell in love with that something else happens. You know, it's not images and it's not words, it's something else. And that's something else, you know, is design. And I just was completely seduced by it as soon as I started doing it. And I was like, and I'm still doing it. And you know, it's funny because I received the AIGA gold medal for design, which is kind of like the lifetime achievement award. And I don't really do too much of that anymore. You know, mostly I do big strategic projects, but lately I've been like the book that I did with Julio, the Nexus book, that is maybe, it might be the best book I've ever designed. It's really intensively, it's woven together with an intricacy that is really beautiful. And it's all about the synthesis of art, science, and technology. So it's all about how do we kind of create this new blend where these worlds intersect, which is kind of perfect for me. And I absolutely love it. And your description of it is exactly right. Like the moment that you touch the book, the moment you open it, you, you immediately are immersed in this new world of synthesis and how these things kind of weave together. I can testify to that. It's one of the most fun reads. It's like going to the best movie that you'll see in a year in each of Bruce Miles' books. There's a few things we shouldn't neglect to say that you have designed over 260 books. You've worked on the future of libraries and the Seattle Public Library. And I want, to, if you could go into that a little bit as well, but also a lot of us forget we, we have so much signage and so many fonts, so much typography around us. And people have said to us, there's an assumption that the written word does not contain tone or doesn't contain elements of the oral tradition. But I think that what you do, particularly in your books, that typography is tone. It is in the hands of a proper reader. There's all the elements of a drama or an orally told story. I mean, I'm a big fan of Marshall McLuhan and McLuhan really talked about, and he wrote about uh, typography as a medium and how it shapes the mind and how it shapes what we experience and shapes how we see things. And so I think of typography as a window that you look through. And so you look through the typography at the content, you don't see the shape of the window, but the shape of the window determines what you see. So you're not looking at the window, right? You're looking through the window, but it, it's coloring, shaping what you see, but most people are not conscious of it. You know, they don't realize this was McLuhan's great kind of thesis that they don't realize that it's working you over. Right. That's why he called it the medium is the massage. He didn't actually say the medium is the message. He said it's a massage, that it's actually pummeling you. It's working you over. So for me, it's really about that kind of you know, how it is shaping what you see and really you know, coloring it and giving you really controlling that release of information. And it's like a movie where you're in control of the projector. Right? So you're deciding how fast the movie's going to go and you can make it go quickly and kind of slip through, or you can kind of really slow it down and go slow-mo and really go in detail. But it's, you know, it's just an absolutely beautiful practice. If you want to go meditative, you know, if you really want to go deep, it's there for you. I like to think about it in that kind of way that some readers are really going to behave like viewers. So they're going to go across the top of things. And some readers are going to really behave like readers and they're going to go deep and they're going to spend a lot of time with you. And you want to reward those readers. You want to give them 
you know, to prove my point, to kind of give an example, I use the typo, right? Like the typo doesn't bother the viewer because they're never going to encounter it. They're just skimming across the top. But a typo is like a rock in a shoe for a reader. That's going to hurt. <laughs> and so you have to be really, you know, you have to be obsessive. And I think it was actually Bjarke Ingels in the film, in the documentary, who said that I have the kind of unique capacity to worry about the foot of a font, as he said, and the strategic intent. For me, it's all design. It's just different registers, different scales, but all the same basically the same methodology. Yes, going back to the film and seeing your life and seeing the perspective as others, someone who's drawn out the stories of so many, and of course your own books, what was that like to be objective, to be in the audience? It was a very strange experience because, you know, as a designer, I'm a control freak. It's about controlling every detail. And in this case, you see control, it's their project. I'm the subject, so it's not my project. You know, I'm the subject of their project. And so it's really up to them, the story they're going to tell. I thought they did a good job. You know, it's pretty honest, I think, in terms of how it was done. Yeah, and a lot of your vulnerabilities too, is someone designing the world and then maybe as all great artists, maybe sometimes neglecting themselves because they're so focused on the world. You know, a lot of, of beautiful reflections on that and then taking a lot of keynotes from your 24 principles too. And I liked how that was woven in. Yeah, they, they did a nice job, I think. It's a hard thing to do, you know, like if you think about almost all films about artists aren't very well done. And aren't, I think aren't successful. They, they don't manage to capture the reality of that artist. And I think this one actually does. Yeah, your beautiful arborescence. I love that word. I mean, I'm totally obsessed with trees. Uh, for, you know, so I couldn't imagine a nicer word to be referred to. <laughs> think of it. And I think also you have a, an affinity with uh, Gilles Deleuze. Uh, and I don't, I'm not sure if I mean it in that sense too, because it's a bit complicated in terms of the philosophy, but yes, uh, this beautiful arborescence. And so as you think about the future and you think about some of those life lessons and teachers that were important to you, when you think about this world that we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I would like them to know that, you know, in my own case that I did as much as I possibly could have, I can't say that, say the same for my generation. You know, we made a lot of mistakes, but more in a way, more importantly, I would like them to know just how powerful they are, that they have the power to shape the world. At some point I realized that the world is produced. The world is designed and produced. And since we design and produce it, we can redesign it. And you can play a part in designing it. You can play a part in that production. It doesn't have to happen to you. And I think for too many people, you know, too much power and too much control is concentrated in too few hands. People need to have the power to control and design their own life. Exactly. And you've given them so many tools and shared so many insights that really help them be the architects of their own lives. So thank you, Bruce Mao, for your empowering and inspiring message and sharing your roadmaps to the future, expanding our appreciation of design, its importance as a vehicle for environment, industrial and social change, and providing the tools to help us create massive change and design a better tomorrow. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and One Planet podcast. Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Bruce. Very, very nice. I really enjoyed it.
A wonderful conversation. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Amy Highsmith. Digital Media Coordinator was Doug Evans. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.